Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. This conversation is brought to you by Chanel. A visionary woman whose influence on the arts continues even today, Gabrielle Chanel created her life and her legend on her own terms. Discover her story at InsideChanel.com. For Gabrielle Chanel, reading was a refuge which allowed her to invent her own destiny right from childhood. Literature became a passion she shared with the love of her life, Boy Capel, and her friends like Cocteau Colette, Pierre Riverdi, and Max Jacob. She helped the authors she admired without them knowing. She had the story of her life told by Paul Morand, Louise de Villemorin, and Michel Dion. She read for inspiration and then became an inspiration herself. Watch the film Gabrielle Chanel and Literature at InsideChanel.com. I don't think books are stable objects because your brain is not a stable object. And so you're always sort of um, translating things that you've written or things that you've read differently depending on where you are in your life. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. 
To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Today we get to air a conversation with Catherine Lacey, the novelist and short story writer, most recently the author of the novel Pew. Pew was one of my favorite books of last year. The book's narrator and title character is someone about whom we know for the whole book almost nothing, not even the things that we're often able to identify or at least guess about strangers. Pew is featureless, genderless, racially ambiguous, young, but nobody really knows how young. And for most of the book, Pew refuses to speak. Pew has no history, no future, no nothing. And Pew, who's a keen observer of the world, but this totally blank page, arrives into a small town in America that we understand to be maybe somewhere in the middle of the country some time ago, or possibly an alternative speculative present day. And it's a religious community and an insular community. And in this setting, this character becomes a cipher, a way of exploring the way that humans encounter an other who they can't read and categorize. The book is also about Pew's confusion at everyone else's need to read them, how everyone else is so unnerved by their inscrutability. There's a quote from the book that I think sets up the conversation that Catherine and I had kind of nicely. Pew is wondering why everyone is so fixated on their appearance, on trying to read and make determinations about their body. And Pew says, why did they cause so much trouble for us? Why did we use them against one another? Why did we think the content of a body meant anything? Why did we draw our conclusions with our bodies when the body is so inconclusive, so mercurial? And those questions were kind of the template or a template that Catherine and I used um, throughout our conversation to structure our conversation, which was also about religion and childhood and identity and change and alienation and so many other things. Hope you enjoy. Pew in particular, I started writing right after I left New York sort of unexpectedly, like moved away unexpectedly, um, or at least it wasn't part of my like plan for how that year was going to go. Um, and I had not moved, I had not lived in a new city and like not had a reason to be there in so long that um, I just forgot how lonely it was, <laughs> you know, to like really start over and to kind of like wonder like what... Um, what your life is when you sort of empty everything out of it. Uh, I mean, I had reason to, like, it wasn't like random or chaotic. Um, there's been other like more random and chaotic parts of my life, but it still was, I was surprised. I was like, I made this like rational choice. And then I was sort of met with this, um, this feeling of, of not really having a consistent life anymore. And yeah, in some ways that's kind of, that was a sort of like instigating moment before writing Pew, but I think what ended up um, sort of being the engine of the book has more to do with like my childhood, you know, more than any of the other books. It's sort of like a difficult and more tender book to talk about in some ways, because some of the raw material is just is so particularly raw for me. And in some ways, like, it's easy to talk about, like, you know, like the, the story is a familiar one of like being, um, raised in a sort of religious environment and then clinging to it and then sort of inevitably reading your way out of it. But I think first I really read myself very deeply into the Bible and it wasn't just like the threat of heaven and hell or like 
you know, in a lot of ways, my my family is not extremely conservative or anything. There wasn't like a lot of hatred or sort of stress from them um, in any way. But I think a lot of the trouble that I had with the religion was like self-generated. And I was just a very um, serious child. And I took the Bible very, very seriously. And it really, um, it was, you know, just a profoundly difficult and, and personal, uh, period of years, this relationship that I had with, with the Bible and with Christianity and with Jesus and like this internal world that I had. Um, I just, I really wondered about how, what was the best way to live in like every single action. I mean, I guess like now I look back at it and I was like, oh, I was an anxious child. <laughs> you know, like it's all, it's all very simple. Um, but at the time it felt like, it, you know, it felt as serious as a Bible story. Um, the choices that I made about who I was friends with or what I did or what I said or what I believed or what I thought, these were all like kind of uh, sort of life and death decisions in a certain way. And I think also you know, some of the emptiness of Pew as a character, as an idea. Um, I think that's kind of how I felt. I didn't realize that like when I started writing and I thought it was sort of a book of ideas or something, you know, a, a story that was sort of about something very external to me. But I think, um, and also just the idea that that Pew is an impossible character. And of course, like I am white and female and was born into this kind of family. And like there are facts, you know, nobody gets out of like having just basic attributes. But in some ways, like I think I felt I felt kind of like this empty vessel. Um, and I think I think that it's not it's not an uncommon um, it's not an uncommon feeling to have, I think, if you're a very religious child at least maybe maybe adults too but I'm not a religious adult so I wouldn't know what denomination were you raised in um just Methodist um which in the south is like you know uh it was not it was not a very conservative church that I grew up in but I basically spent every free hour that I had doing something church related and then like within within those um you know, like weekend retreats or youth group or different Sunday schools or whatever, there would be different people that would be, you know, just fallible adults that were sort of <laughs> leading uh, these classes and sort of like, you know, I looked to them like they were conduits to God. And sometimes they had, you know, more or less sort of extreme opinions to sort of put into the atmosphere. Like I remember in a summer camp that I went to, there was a woman there that was like, astrology is tainted with Satan. And like, if you play with a tarot, like, or like a Ouija board, you're, you're like talking to Satan. And, you know, so it's like different. I was just yeah. talking to one of my best friends who grew up in a really religious community. And she's like still a little mistrustful of tarot because she just remembers the being told as a child that it was like talking to the devil, even though yeah. she does. She knows that's not she right. doesn't believe that anymore, but she just has this kind of residual sense of unease because that was what she was told. Totally. I mean, it takes so long to sweat out some of these things if you take them um, very seriously as as a child. And it's not it's not logical necessarily because it becomes it becomes an emotional memory, you know? Yeah, I'm um, just like full disclosure. I'm relating to this personally because I also I got um, I got accidentally sent to my parents didn't intend to, but they accidentally sent me to Christian 
to Christian camp when I was like seven or eight and I got saved and came <gasps> back, came back like a born again Christian to much to their total like shock and mild dismay. But then <laughs> I had, I had this like very personal, it was sort of me in the Bible cause I wasn't in a, in a church going family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I remember that feeling of being, um, like very available to be imprinted on. You're talking about this feeling of um, uh, kind of like blank cipher quality of yourself as a child that then kind of becomes part of Pew's character. Um, and it's it's true the way that these stories that there's something that feels to me unusual about the way that Bible stories and some of the stories that are told around the Bible feel so imprinting um, and also feel like they're confusing. And so they require constant, maybe especially for children, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not a religious adult either, but they <laughs> like they require constant interpretation. It's not clear what they mean. And yet they are so high stakes. Yeah. You know, now that you're, now that we're talking about it, I think um, there's a part of like the state of Pew or to me, like, I don't really think of, I don't think of my characters as characters. Like, I don't think of Pew as a human individual sort of wandering around with, like, their story continuing. And nor do I think of, like, any of the characters in any of the books as, like, individuals. I think of them as kind of a set of ideas and a sort of way of speaking or a way of looking at the world that is not necessarily particular to any, like, individual. Um, but I think Pew kind of as an idea is, has more to do, I think, with childhood than, maybe I originally realized or thought, um, yeah. And just this impressionability that, that we have. And I don't think that that's something that's unique to like a religious childhood. Um, you know, it's just, I think it's a state that can be like useful and it can be returned to. And I think in some ways it's, it's related to a creative state of being kind of impressionable and being a sort of crucible for something to travel through. Um, but it's also, it's dangerous, you know, in the old Testament, like I came across, uh, uh, the part that says that you're not supposed to eat pig for instance, or like, it's basically just like, it's describing sort of a kosher diet. And I went to my parents and I was like, I have to be, I have to be this, you know, I didn't know that what I was doing was like, I'm, I am now a kosher Jew. Like your child, (laughs) a a Protestant nine-year-old is now like, uh, a practicing, um, uh, I can't think of the word right now, but, um, anyway, I was just kosher. I was like a nine-year-old Protestant kosher kid. And, uh, because I read it in the Bible, but I didn't understand like, why is my family eating pork if we are Christian and nobody could really explain it to me. And I was like, yeah, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to, um, this is how I'm going to eat now. Um, (laughs) and you know, my family was like, okay, like whatever you want, that's fine. Um, but, and then like the thing that you said of like, you went to this camp and had like a, you were born again, you had this experience. Um, I think, you know, especially when you're like a preteen kind of in those like very tender, stressful years, um, the idea that you could be redeemed in any way is so appealing, you know? And like, I remember going up in front of a bunch of people and like, uh, you know, hands in the air, looking just like a kind of like one of those commercials of like the Christian, like rock musics, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> assuming, uh, assuming the position. Oh, totally. And it's like, there's a, there's a script and there's like a way for you to belong. And 
um, yeah, I mean, it, it's people really do want ritual of some kind and they want belonging of some kind. And if you can't find that in one place, you'll find it in another, you know? Yeah. How did you, um, how did you, it sounds like you exited that, uh, part of your life or part of, or that relationship to that particular text and that particular culture. How did, how did that happen? Was it because your reading changed? I, it was, I was, uh, I was sent to a private school in Tennessee when I was 14. And there I was like, still like witnessing to girls and like telling them not to drink and not to have sex. And, you know, this was like not making me, uh, very popular at all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but then I took a class. Well, I'm not even, I think it was actually even before I took the class, I started reading about like different Eastern religions. My first my first roommate was Hindu. She was Indian, Indian American. And, uh, yeah, I had like, <laughs> I mean, I was, I just lived such a kind of like extremely, uh, American, very like Protestant centric life in Mississippi that like, it just never really occurred to me that there were other people <laughs> in the world. Um, and I mean, just like learning a little bit about like her tradition and then just reading a lot, just reading like other, other religious texts and, um, history and everything. It just sort of like, I kind of just read myself out of it, you know, I read myself into it, read myself out of it. But, it, um, like your friend, you mentioned earlier, like it took, it took many more years to kind of like get past some of the like different hangups about like what, how I was supposed to, um, behave or believe or like whether or not I could um, dispense with the kind of comfort of there being an afterlife. Like there's lots of steps, I think, for anybody who's like been religious and then, um, you know, decided that's not really an honest way to live for you anymore. It takes a while of like to like remove all the pieces. And I would say probably, I probably am still sweating out ones that I'm not even aware I still carry. <laughs> I'm a, like, I love that. Uh, phrase that you're using, sweating it out. Like it's like yeah. way inside your body. <laughs> oh, it's it just working is. its way out. It definitely is. Was that a, did that feel um, like a, was there a moment when you, when you thought, oh, this, I don't, I can't really believe this in the same way I've been believing this? You know, I like, I was trying to write, the first book I ever tried to write was about, uh, you know, about more, it was more, it was like personal essays basically about this. And I, I was too young to be writing it. And I just didn't really, I just didn't, I, and also like, I wasn't through a lot of the things that I thought I was through with. Um, you know, it was like in my early twenties and I just didn't know what else to write about. And so that's what I was writing about. And I could never really come up with an adequate, like set of images of like, or scenes of like what, what happened or what I read or what occurred. Um, and so that was maybe I, it, you know, I, it even sort of started to make me think like, did I ever stop? Was I ever religious? <laughs> you know, like if you don't have a story for something, it's actually very difficult to attach yourself to it. I did have like an atheist boyfriend and he was just proudly atheist. He'd been raised Episcopalian and he was, he was just fine with saying, no, this is all bullshit. And, you know, I would not disagree with him, but I was worried about him, even though I wasn't religious anymore. I was like, you know, let's not be so hasty to be atheist, you know, <laughs> even though like basically I was, <laughs> um, but it, there was something about 
um, touching that word that felt really scary. But I think, you know, he was, you know, I really trusted him and respected him. And so I think um, nothing like loving an atheist to help you get out of your um, (laughs) religious extremism. Realizing the fears of every like church Bible group leader for youth youth leader ever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, he terrified my parents, this very sweet boy, but they were frightened of him. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Um, so there's something you've been saying and I want to like probe it a little bit deeper, which is that if it, the relationship you're describing having with the Bible as this young, very kind of impressionable person who's trying to figure out how to be in the world. Like there's, there's a right way to be and this book is going to help you figure out what it is. And the stakes are really high. I'm wondering, and then it, it is like striking that then you grew up to be a person who writes books. And I'm wondering if that fundamental, if that relationship you have with texts, um, has, changed or if it's just transferred if it's uh if you feel like you have a different relationship with books now I I would like to say that it has changed but I think a more honest answer is that it has transferred because in the last god how old am I I guess the last like 15 years I've been reading books as a kind of like with a sort of same seriousness that I used to read the bible um and I think I—I I mean, I still—I still do it. Like I—I I, when I, I'm like I read very um, aggressively and take lots of notes and sort of—I um, guess I'm trying to decide like what is the best way to write, which is a much um, a much less stressful question to answer than like what is the right way to live your life so that you can meet God afterwards. <laughs> you know, like that's sort of uh, maybe you're not going to accomplish that in your life. Like maybe there's no um, sense of like a total moral perfection that you exist in during the years that you're alive on the planet. Um, but I think that there, it it is possible to, um, like at least momentarily or, you know, book to book sort of achieve a goal, (laughs) you know? And so I would say there's a lot more satisfaction in my reading now, um, because, like the the goal is attainable, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going for like everlasting life. I'm just like, maybe I could write a book that produces a feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the, the books are still maps, but the, the thing they're mapping to is like a little less celestial. Yeah. Yeah. Or like it is momentarily, like, I think that there is something really, um, transporting and religious and, uh, like ritualized and, kind of redemptive and like reading the right book at the right time. Um, or, you know, occasionally writing something that you feel like is doing exactly what you want it to be doing. Um, though I think like, you know, if you go back and read a book that, you know, when you were 20, it just, it like turns you inside out and then you go read it again. You're like, huh, this doesn't really feel the same at 35. Um, and then I think the same is true for like, for writing, like things that you were really proud of, like, it's not that you think that they're bad, but they don't feel the same maybe some years later. Um, which is, I think fine. I don't think that like, I don't think books are stable objects because your brain is not a stable object. And so you're always sort of, um, 
translating things that you've written or things that you've read differently depending on where you are in your life. Yeah. It makes me think of um, conversations or interviews I've read with people who are trying to decide, like, what is the appropriate moment in relation to a life event to write about that life event? Like, when is the right time to write the memoir of, yeah. of whatever? We really want there to be like a clear and easy and correct path in in writing. And especially I feel like, feel like in memoir, because there's some kind of um, there's some sort of absolute truth that you're trying to to reach or achieve or like convey. But there's really just no shortcuts. There's no correct way to do it. There's no easy way to do it. And it's, you know, you're just, you know, there's just no rules to any of it. Did now feel like, did you write Pew because now felt like sort of the right moment to be setting these ideas down? Or was it just because they were the ones that came out? I think it was a little bit circumstantial. Like certainly um, the ideas in the book are ones that I've been kind of carrying with me for a long time. Um, but I think it was partially just the circumstance of of feeling like a stranger in a strange town again, which is it wasn't something that I had felt in a while because um, I had been in New York for like, I think about 10 years and I felt really, I felt very cozy and at ease there. I had, you know, like a, a very, um, strange, but simple life. Uh, and I didn't realize it, you know, I hadn't had to consider, um, I hadn't had to really consider myself much in, in those years and in that place. And then just the, just the experience of, of leaving it and being kind of set against a different background. Um, I guess it just sort of, it was just circum that circumstance pushed me toward the idea of the book. Yeah. What do you, what was it about that confluence of events? Do you think that sort of sent you that, that it sounds like a disruption in a way, um, to your life? Well, I think, you know, it, it just, it just so happened that was also, um, the months leading up to the, um, Trump election. And I think as we were sort of seeing a part of our society that wants to judge and categorize and exclude and um, describe people in very brutal terms and um, have power over them. Like, I think that was a sort of, not that, I think that was like, the, these ideas were sort of being um, kind of painfully expressed during that year as well. Um yeah, and I think that was a part of it as well. I mean, at this point, it's like it feels like so long ago. It feels like a different – it just feels so long ago. Four years ago – I mean, I'm sure that most people feel this way. It's like um, the last four years have just felt – it's hard to even talk about four years ago. It seems like we're both too close and too far away from that time to even remember what it felt like. But it was terrifying. Um, and I think, you know, for many, for many different reasons and uh, – yeah. So that's when the book began. I didn't really write it until the next year over a period of kind of strange and estranged months. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm I'm curious to hear you talk about um, the way that that estrangement or the circumstances of that estrangement sent you kind of both back into this excavation or re-examination of 
your some some of the aspects of your childhood and forward into kind of a new creative space while also as you were saying like making you examine yourself I don't totally know what 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 that means when you say it but it sounds like there was something about this alienation or this disruption or estrangement that kind of put you made you operate in three directions forward back and center yeah well I think um the kind of American Protestantism that I grew up in well I guess I should say that like the religious Protestant environment that I grew up in is particularly American and there was something about that year that was just um you know think causing all Americans to sort of think about what it means to be American in a way, or like what, what this American project is all about. Um, and at the same time, what I was experiencing on a personal level was, uh, you know, just very private and inward and, and personal, just this, uh, you know, being, being in a new place, kind of living a new life unexpectedly. And yeah, I think there was a tension between that of like, how do I reconcile the like, the personal experience I had uh, within this very American um, framework of like American Protestantism in the South in the eighties, you know, like I was sort of, I was looking back at those at that time and sort of understanding how I was a little speck on a, a, a pain of history rather than like thinking about it from the inward out where I think in the past I had been thinking about, Oh, my childhood as like uniquely mine, which I think is all always a problem when it comes to trying to write about something. Um, and, and it was a problem that I ultimately came up against when I was trying to write about that time was that I really just didn't want to be the character in that story. Like I knew that there was a story to it and there were ideas to it and there was something I was trying to express, but I actually never wanted to be the central character in the story. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I, I don't, I think it was just, uh, I think those things kind of overlapped in the right moment and that's sort of where the book came from. Although I say that now and it's like, I think, in 20 years, I may have a, a much better and more succinct and clearer understanding of like how any given book arrives, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Something that um, is really stuck out to me about Pew, the book and the character is that, or the, yeah, the central figure it, is the way that um, they explore the body as this contested threshold or this meeting point between a person and the world around them. And I was curious where that fascination came from for you. Well, the kind of, um, the kind of Christianity that I was sort of led to believe was correct was one that um, kind of vilifies the body and sort of thinks of it as the site of of everything sort of immoral in the world. Um, and of course, I don't, I, I think there was also a part of me as a child that sort of, I think that all children understand this, that like your body is just this remarkable thing that you live in temporarily and... Um, 
like we don't totally understand it and like it's a miracle that it can do some of the things that it can do and like being on a swing is a wonderful sensation and there's just these things like children know about bodies that we try and force them to forget whether through like a religious framework or just through the kind of um you know the circumstances in society that sort of want you know they want the body not to decay and you know, for your hair not to go gray and for you not to wrinkle and for, you know, all these, all these different things that, that society wants from the body. And I, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, on this point, it's impossible to extract myself from the fact of just being female and that having an influence on, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go answer the door. I think somebody it's keeps okay. ringing the bell. Yeah, go for it. I guess as I had to just like get up and walk around the house uh, for a minute, I just have remembered that um, I think it, uh, something that has been important to me as a writer is um, I guess remembering that writing is actually a physical act unless, I mean, of course it is like an, an intellectual and a mental feat as well, but I think um, something I've learned uh, that I, I, I'm trying to like grasp uh, more clearly as a writer is is just the remembrance that syntax is a physical thing. Syntax is like a picture of what's happening within the body of the person speaking. And um, yeah, so in some ways like that, that aspect of Pew that is very, um, I mean, it's very bodily. It's very private because the entire thing is a is a you know most of it is the interior, the interiority of a person that's not speaking, and so all of the all of the syntax and all of the the language that's being um, that's in the book is is what's being sort of felt within the body of the main character. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of like, as I'm thinking about it, it's sort of, uh, I guess, kind of a metaphor for the experience of of reading, you know, where like you try and sort of temporarily vanish yourself into a book. And like, you know, hopefully, hopefully a book does that to you and you, you do get to forget yourself and forget, you know, forget your history and sort of live in the history of a, of a different voice. Like when, okay, when Adele sings, for instance, like she can be hitting a note that anybody else hits and, you know, maybe singing the same song as somebody else with like a similar register and sort of uh, type of voice as hers. But you, you know, it's her voice and not somebody else's voice. Or like, maybe you do if you're into Adele, but like, you know, insert whatever singer it is that whose voice you really understand and can recognize. And when you're really asked to break down, well, what is it particular about, this voice that makes it different from somebody else's voice. You might be able to describe it in sort of discrete scientific terms, but there's also like kind of ineffable third thing. And I think that that's, it's like, it's an imprint of this person's body. And that's kind of, um, I think that's also true in writing. Like I think of writing as a performance and the book or the story or the poem or whatever it is, the essay, the article is a sort of, 
impression left by this performance. And uh, it's just, it's not, it's not purely a, a mental exercise um, just because it's still, we're still, you know, you're putting words on a page that then if somebody reads it, then those words are going through their, you know, eyes into their brain and creating sounds in their brain, you know, and, and those sounds are like, uh, they're the memories of physical things that have happened. When you've heard the word grapefruit, I don't know, like half a million times in your life, or maybe less than that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Depends like, on how much you like grapefruit. <laughs> I guess it does. And how many times you're, how, how many um, grapefruit lovers do you surround yourself with? But anyway, you hear that word. It's, I know the sound of grapefruit. It lodges itself in my ear and that does something to my brain. Like when you really, like if you actually really look at the ear, it's, it's like, it's the weirdest analog to digital little device that I, I've ever closely studied. Like, I know I must have learned this in biology class at some point, but like a few days ago or weeks ago, months ago or whatever, I like watched this like YouTube video that was like just showing parts of the ear. It was kind of like a 3D like reconstruction of the ear and, and showing you what happens when a sound wave comes in and it translates through all these little parts and bones and things and names I can't remember. And then that's translated eventually into a synapse in your brain. I mean, obviously so quickly, but it kind of made me realize, or I've been thinking about this since I watched this little video, um, that that's what we're doing. You know, that's what language is. It's, it's doing things, it's doing that, but from kind of the outside in, you know, Whereas reading would seem to be doing that from the inside out in a way. It's like relying on relying on n neural memory. Yeah, I think it actually kind of goes back and forth because obviously part of when you're writing, you are reading what you've written and you're sort of – I find myself sometimes um, sort of physically taking on the posture of the person that's speaking or the kind of type of voice that's speaking. Um, and also like I've been – working on a screenplay and that is like a very really weird <laughs> process for me because I, I feel very like kind of I feel like a little bit like I'm losing my mind if I'm actually like writing dialogue well because I I am almost saying everything out loud you know like I'm just I'm sitting there muttering to myself in like 15 different voices it's um you know it's better it, I think it works better that way at least for me like I've found um to kind of read like to to uh, have a physical understanding of what's happening in a scene before it's even quite written um, is helpful for me. Did, how did that work with Pew? Particularly because Pew is so um, there's sort of no vaguely, body. yeah. There's yeah. the body is just a placeholder or a. It was difficult. Scrim. It was honestly really difficult for me because I the other characters that I've had written novels in the voice of. I had a much better understanding of their physicality and just by virtue of design, I couldn't understand Pew's physicality. And so I guess, I mean, it was, it was frustrating. I feel like I railed against it and I sort of knew some of that frustration was going to be in the book. And part of reading the book is sort of asking the reader to make the bargain with me that like, we're going to exist in this non-place together. And um, you have to actually... <sighs> somehow find a way to imagine 
a human without any of these qualities, which is, it's difficult. It was difficult for me. And it sort of made me realize um, how much I am a part of the system that I think that I'm against of like categorizing bodies. Um, it's actually very difficult to sit with ambiguity when it comes to the body. Um, at least when it comes to the body of another. Does that feel like a project of yours in your writing? Cause that's a, that seems like a theme in your, in your various books. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, I think with this one in particular, one sort of unintended, well, I, I mean, maybe it was this kind of buried intention that I didn't really realize was there was, um, I feel like in the last like 15 years, there's been a lot more, uh, dialogue and sort of understanding about what it means to have like a non-binary body. Um, and even I feel like I had discussions with people like 10 years ago that would seem crazy that you'd need to have to like convince somebody of like the validity of being non-binary. But it used to it used to be a really hard thing for anybody to not anybody, but for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. Then now maybe they just don't, you know, it's not so much a question anymore. But I think part of the part of the difficulty of that conversation has been that unless you actually know someone who's trans it can be kind of, it can feel like a very distant sort of abstract um, question, you know, this, this question of, of categorizing the body and like um, having a relationship to your, to your own gender, for instance. Um, if you don't feel like you have a stake in that conversation, it can feel very like far away. Um, but I think that everybody actually has a much, like a much more sincere and personal relationship to the innate queerness of a body than we maybe give ourselves room to realize. Um, like I don't, you know, I'm cisgendered and I feel like fine with being female. And like, I, I, I'd never really thought of myself as like having um, like a personal stake when it comes to like gender identity, you know, like it, it just felt like a, an abstract thing that I had to sort of learn to understand somebody else's perspective in. But I think the fact that I had such a difficult time inhabiting the body of this person that, that doesn't belong to any category that I can see sort of makes it clear to me that actually I do have a personal stake in this. And it is, it is something that I think everyone experiences a kind of estrangement from your body at one point or another. And it's not just, um, I think this conversation about like trans identity and and you know individuals' relationship to um, gender or sex or whatever. I think every everyone actually has a story related to it. And um, yeah, I guess I I want to be on the side of the conversation that's sort of opening that up and making it um, clear that that yeah everyone everyone has everyone actually does have a personal stake in it. And it's not just something that's happening to other people. Did writing this character or this, this figure cause you to re-examine your own body, your own, or I forget what your phrase was, but something about how everybody has a much more um, 
might have a relationship to the to the queerness of the, of their bodies if we would allow mm -hmm. them to or if we if we created space for that was that something that you went back and re experienced for yourself writing this book I don't I wonder if it's writing the book or just getting older um and also just like being being in a different kind of relationship being in a different like just a different stage of life I think sometimes people can think like, oh, my book caused this thing to happen in my life, or it's because I read this or wrote this or did this that this thing happened. When I think a lot of things just happen sort of circumstantially. Um, so I, I, it would be, I think I would be um, <laughs> maybe giving, uh, you know, a book that I wrote maybe too much credit <laughs> or giving myself too much credit and not circumstance like enough credit. All of what we're talking about, this idea of the body as a cipher, as something that then presents itself to the world, something that can be maybe queerer than we than we think, or in which you know where we all have a stake in the in in its queerness. How that relates to it's funny that you put that in in the same book that's also about what it felt like to be in a religious community as a kid. Um, and I guess something that you said that really struck me was about how the community you grew up in or the, the version of Christianity you grew up in really held the body in suspicion. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm curious to what extent you feel like you're interested in like making a reclamation of, of the body and its various possibilities through writing or just in your life. I like that word a lot. Um, I do think that everyone has to do that. You know, you don't need to have grown up in a religion that you no longer hold to feel like you need to reclaim something. I think lots of things are um, taken from us when we're children. And I think everyone can relate to that. Um, I do think that uh, I guess more of what I went, meant about like that everyone actually does have a queer relationship to their own body is just that you don't know why we're here or like what it means to have a consciousness encased in flesh for a period of some years. Um, and I think that we, a lot of times just take that for granted and, and sort of, you know, Oh, of course we don't really like know where human consciousness came from or why it does the things that it does, but blah, 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 blah. And for me, I just say, I feel like you, the fact that we don't know that, sort of underpins every question that we can have or propose about the body or any um, certainty that we think we can have about being physical, being physical beings is just, to me, it's not like a shut case. Like, and uh, anyone who thinks that it is, I think has deluded themselves. And I would invite them to remember that we, none of us know why any of this is the way that it is. And that's, and we're not going to know most likely, you know? Uh, so, so that just, if, if that doesn't like make you feel strange about like, what does it mean to have an arm? Like some days I'm just like, <laughs> you look at your arm growing out of your body and you're like, why, what is that? You know? And I can move it with thinking. It's just, it never stops to like, you know, it just never stops being perverse to me in some way. <laughs> and so like, I just think it's, you know, the more 
like, I don't know. The more we have people just sort of, you know, upending what is seen as normal, then the better. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.